According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are going to be in Philippians chapter 2 again this evening as we're in the Kenosis hymn. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And all the doctrine that centers on how he emptied himself. And what does it mean to empty oneself? And uh, not just for any person in general, but for the God-man. When God the Son emptied himself, he took the form of a bondservant. And that's uh, just unthinkable to us. The idea that he left the, the ivory palaces in order to come here. <laughs> all right? He left all the perks and privileges and glories of being God the Son in order to be born of a virgin and to walk this walk, to identify with you and with me. And so that's what we're looking at. All right, before we begin, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer. God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment of silent prayer to confess any sin that needs to be dealt with and to uh, humble yourself under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you tonight thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for your truth. And Father, uh, so uh, unworthy, who are we that we should come before you and receive instruction? And yet, Father, by your grace, we are baptized into union with your Son. And Father, you look upon us and you don't see the sinner, you see your beloved Son in whom you're well pleased. And I thank you for that. And I thank you, Father, that in our position in Christ, we have standing before you, We have uh, the privilege to stand before your presence, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And tonight, we're going to rightly divide the word of truth. And by your grace, we're going to learn something. So I thank you for that. And uh, bless our time tonight. Glorify your son. Feed us and bless us. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we do want to take a few minutes for question and answer tonight. And uh, we will need a volunteer microphone runner since I left mine at home, and uh, thank you, Lewis, appreciate that. And um, unlike previous weeks where I had a long list of email questions and so forth, there is, there is no pending old business, so I'm going to give the front row here our lead-off question. You sent me an email? Oh, you did send me an email. I'm going to talk to you about that privately. I'm going to talk to you about that offline. That's... Uh, that's a longer discussion than we're going to get into here tonight. Did you have a different question or just that one? Okay. All right. We'll talk after class. How about that? All right. Bill, did you have a question? Apparently so. All right. I was reading a quote that uh, Luther, it, it's a quote comes from Luther, something that he had written, and he speaks about... Um, the nature of Christ, holy God, holy man, you know, which one is it? Is it both? And he says that for this reason, God and the human being have become one person. And this person bears the, I might be pronouncing this wrong, the idiomata of both natures in consequence. So he's saying that while Christ was on this earth, that he not only had both natures, the God nature and the human nature, 
but on the cross he also suffered in his divinity and in his humanity. And it was Luther that said that? It was Luther that said that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting, and different people handle that in different ways. What was the deity of Christ doing while the humanity of Christ died? And Because uh, deity cannot die. Um, and I think sometimes people approach it wrong. They approach it as if there's two different beings. It's one person with two natures. And so the person is who died. And yet, obviously, deity is not capable of dying. And so in, it was only in the human nature that he had that separation between the Father and himself. So um, I'd have to read that. If you want to email that to me, I can read it you know, just to, to see it. And I'm very visual, and I don't often hear things right. Um, but was there a question in that? or No, I was just wanting just a little bit of clarification, if that made any sense to you, because I was looking at it from a different perspective, I guess, and it was just kind of like, I, I was I guess I was just trying to understand how someone perhaps how someone could view that as being holy God and holy man. It was both that were put on the cross, and it was both that suffered. Well, the person of Jesus Christ was on the cross. And the person of Jesus Christ with two natures was on the cross. Yeah, he's only one person. And that's usually, I try to keep it simple on that. that That's what I was wondering. Okay. All right, Radley. Mr. Fitcaw in the back row there. Thank you. Uh, my question would be if, let's say you have two minutes and you're, I don't know if you're going to see this person again or not, you just real quickly have two minutes to talk with somebody that is positive, they've just come to a saving knowledge or they're very close, they get saved, and you have two minutes to talk to them about what is important as kind of, the just as they got saved, what would it be in your opinion? <laughs> what would be the most important? You have like two minutes, what would you tell them? I have two minutes, it's like yeah, <laughs> elevator evangelism or right, something. Exactly. You know, yeah. There you go. We have a very finite time, and their their floor is coming up. And we'll, um, you know, so they they have they name the name of Christ. They get yeah. saved on they the elevator, saved, and they get saved on the I'm never going to see them again. What are you going to emphasize and make most important? I'm going to hand them my business card and say, "Call me tomorrow." <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, right. um, I mean, what can you say in two minutes? You yeah. know, but any any brand new believer, I want them to know, hey, guess what? Um, you're now a newborn. You're an infant. You just exited the womb. And, and, and so think of in spiritual terms. You know, you can't feed yourself. You can't clothe yourself. You can't change your own diaper. So recognize that. You're now a spiritual infant in Christ. You need to long after the pure milk of the Word. You need, you need to nurse, right? And no infant can nurse without yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah a mom, right? A Anyway, so they need that. They need to be in a local church. They need to be under teaching. They need to have older brothers and sisters. They need to have a church family. And, uh, and obviously, Austin Bible Church is, is where they need to be for the, the finest of any Bible teaching to be found in, uh, <laughs> right. in the state of Texas. Um, but that's, that's what I'd start. Also, um, even a warning that now that they name the name of Christ, that, uh, that they're going to be a target. You know, I, I want to tell a brand new believer, look, on day one, uh, you have now been born into God's family, and there is an adversary who uh, views you as the enemy, and uh, and the ad- adversary will always want to pick off the young, the young, the sick, the, the the ones that haven't learned yet how to put their armor on and how to stand by faith. And so, a newborn in Christ needs a lot of grounding in, in basic doctrine. 
And, uh, and then, so, uh, I don't want to dampen their excitement about being saved. I mean, they're going to have a, a thrill about not going to hell when they die and having their sins forgiven. There's all kinds of joy that comes with getting saved, but I don't want to dampen that. And at the same time, I want them to know, look, um, there's a lot of hard work in front of you now because you got the rest of your life to grow in grace and knowledge and, and it starts now. And, and it's a serious thing in your, in your soldier function, in your priestly function, in your ambassadorial function, that there is a whole realm in front of you and, and you're a babe in Christ and you don't know any of that yet. So that's, that's uh, uh, maybe then my next step would be to find out who is the evangelist. Am I the evangelist that led them to the Lord? Or you're <laughs> sure, saying somebody else led sure. them to the Lord? No, you would be the evangelist. Okay, well then I'm going to take them to church. That's yeah. <laughs> I will see you Sunday morning. I will pick you up at 8 o'clock and we're going to be at prayer meeting at 8.30. So, yeah. you know. And that's something else. An evangelist uh, leads somebody to the Lord and then just cuts them loose like they're abandoning an infant in the field or something. You know, it's just hope you find a good church somewhere. Don't tell them that. Take them to church and, and stick with them. And uh, go eat with them after church and say, now, you know, can I, can I explain anything the pastor said there? Can I answer your questions? Or let's follow up with, with some things there. Because so. I imagine a new believer would sit here thinking they're drinking from a fire hose and, and, and they would need a brother to come alongside and kind of walk them through the basics of, of what they're learning. Right. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's cross the aisle there and then we'll come back to Chuck. Uh-huh. Okay, in verse, in, uh, uh, what we're doing now, okay, Eight, nine, eight, nine. Jesus is named. His name is above all names. What do you think of parents naming their sons Jesus? You know, what do you <laughs> think about that? You know, I don't know. It's a, it's more common among Spanish speakers. Jesus is very common uh, among Spanish speakers, but uh, English speakers named Jesus. I don't know that many. In fact, I don't think I've met one. I've heard. Uh, yeah. In my walks, I've heard. You know. Uh-huh. No one. You know, guys named that. Joshua is the same name. It's just uh, it's just Hebrew instead of Greek. Jesus is Greek, and, and Joshua is, is Hebrew. So, if if you're touchy about maybe the name Jesus, then then name him Joshua, and you can get away with that. <laughs> but no, I don't I don't have an objection to it. It's uh, it's a human name, and, and Jesus had a human name. So, and there are names though that fall. Uh, you know, there haven't been many Adolfs since World War II. Uh, you know, there's other names that fall into disrepute. Judas has a has a big problem. Uh, but that kind of a thing. Uh, some names get uh, some infamy attached to them, and they get avoided for those reasons. But uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe Christians would be reluctant to give the name Jesus to to an offspring. But I'll have to think about that. I'm not sure. So. All right, Chuck had a question tonight too. And uh, they, you're right. So I have a question about Deuteronomy eleven twenty nine. What is it talking about? <laughs> it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, that you shall place the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. So they had a big rehearsal of the Mosaic Law when they entered into the land. And six tribes went up on one mountain and six tribes went up on a neighboring mountain. And they, they shouted to each other across the valley in the, in the middle. They actually recited the blessings and the cursings. And uh, Mount Gerizim was the Mount of Blessing. And uh, Mount Ebal, I think it was called, was the Mount of, of Cursing. Yeah, right there, Mount Ebal was the uh, Mount of Cursing. And so... And that's what they did. And they recited the blessings, they recited the cursings, 
Remember, they, Israel had put themselves under the conditional covenant of Mosaic law, and they agreed to it. They said, yep, we'll do that. And uh, even though they knew that breaking that law would result in cursing, and then they recited the blessings, they recited the cursing. So that's what that was. In later years, by the way, when the Assyrians took the Jews out of the land and brought the, the other people from the east and put them in the land, those other people, those Gentiles, were, later became known as Samaritans because they were put in the land of Samaria. And those Samaritans copied the Jewish Torah. They made their own Pentateuch called the Samaritan Pentateuch, and they built a temple on that mountain on Mount, and they, because it was the mountain of blessing. And uh, so they they felt that that was a smart thing to do. They didn't, you know, they didn't put it on a Mount Ebal. They put it on Mount Gerizim. And uh, that's what Jesus had to deal with when he met the woman at the well. And she, the Samaritan woman, wanted to know, "Hey, we got this temple here on Mount Gerizim. Is that right, or are you Jews right for the temple you have there in Jerusalem?" So that's the same location of that. Thanks. Yeah, you bet. All right, we have uh, one minute and eleven seconds remaining in this portion. Is there any other? Quick question. Should I take your question anyway? No, I'll, I'll talk to you after class. That's Yeah, it's a, another issue. Okay. Well then, join me in Philippians chapter 2. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now everybody's wanting to know, wants to know. Ooh, ooh, what was Robert asking about? All right. Philippians chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Philippians chapter 2. And so we're centering on our thinking. And really, um, when it says have this attitude, that's a thinking verb. The thinking verb that we've seen again and again and again. shows up ten times here in this book. And it actually precedes uh, the first use in this chapter. It comes there in verse 2. Being of the same mind. And that same mind that we're to have with one another is the mind of of Christ, the thinking that Christ had. And so uh, there's, there's thinking all throughout this chapter. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Again, purpose, that's a thinking verb. It's the same verb as uh, being of the same mind. Uh, used twice in the same verse there in verse 2. Thinking nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility regarding one another is more important than yourselves. And not looking out for your own interests, but looking out for the interests of others. Think this way. Have this thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's our imperative. Who, and now we start a hymn. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, some people end the hymn there. Others prefer to keep the hymn going um, down through verse 11. I prefer to keep the hymn going down through verse 11. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay? So this is what we call the kenosis hymn, the hymn of how Jesus emptied himself. Kenao is the verb, and uh, kenosis is the noun. So in our outline, 
We talked about how the kenosis hymn, and I take it from verse 6 all the way to 11. Some people prefer, like I say, different scholars prefer to end it uh, at verse 8, and then they take 9, 10, and 11 to be Paul's commentary on the hymn. Um, I think I think the uh, the actual uh, lyric nature of the of the language goes down through verse eleven, but either way, um, it may have been Paul's own composition. There are other writings of Paul that are musical, other hymns that he incorporates in other texts. Uh, so he may have uh, composed it himself, or he learned it from somebody else and then adapted it, put it to his use here in uh, in Philippians. Either way, uh, under point six, let me get to that slide. We're giving the details now. The Kenosis hymn provides a creedal affirmation of the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. What do I mean by hypostatic union? God-man. Okay, Hypostasis. He stands under both. He has two natures he, uh, that are both united in, in one person. So uh, he is deity, undiminished deity. God the Son is, is, is no less God than God the Father or God the Holy Spirit, right? We understand Trinity. We understand the nature of God, the one true God in three persons, and that's, uh, that's clear. Old Testament, New Testament alike, we can comprehensively teach the doctrine of Trinity. But within the doctrine of Trinity, it was not the Father that became flesh. It was not the Holy Spirit who became flesh. It was God the Son who became flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. And so that's the, the blessings of the incarnation, okay? And so some of these terms get used interchangeably. Some of these terms get used, I think, incorrectly. Hypostatic union is not incarnation. Do you understand the difference? Hypostatic union is God-man, deity-humanity. That God the Son, of course, has his divine nature of sovereignty, omnipotence, omnipresence, righteousness, justice, veracity, right? We can, we can walk our way through the essence box, and that's God the Son, just as it's God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, eternal life. All of that is true deity, undiminished deity, and true humanity. The human nature that the Father begot, begat, begat, the Son was begotten, Okay? In his humanity, the humanity of Jesus Christ was begotten by the Father. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight as we deal with some of these issues. Okay? Now, incarnation comes from, think carne, right? What do you think? Carne, carne, carne gasada, right? You're thinking beef, you're thinking meat. Okay? I like meat. Well, that's carne, okay? From the Latin, means flesh. And, uh, and that's when the word becomes flesh. And so, strictly speaking, the incarnation does not speak of his humanity, it speaks of his embodiment, okay? His embodiment. And the fact that he was born of a virgin, that he was given a body, it says in Hebrews, a body thou hast prepared for me. And that's key, all right? So when we talk incarnation, we talk embodiment. When we talk hypostatic union, we're discussing the two natures, the divine nature and the human nature, all right? And the only reason these things get conflated, they get confused, is because it's very, very common for most theologians to conflate them and to say the only reason Jesus has a human nature is because he was born of a virgin, right? That it was through the virgin birth, it was through the entrance into this world in a human body, that's when he became human. And you guys know better because you've had more detailed teaching on this. 
but the humanity is not dependent upon the body. In fact, it preceded the body. And we're going to demonstrate that. Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am. And that it was, he was already in hypostatic union when he created the world. He was already in hypostatic union at the creation of Adam. When Adam was made in the image and likeness of God, guess what? God the Son already had a human nature. And uh, that starts to explain certain things, doesn't it? Okay? And we'll demonstrate that from the Scriptures again here tonight in case uh, this is all brand new to you. All right. So uh, as we go through the details then, he existed in the form of God. And we have morphe theu and we have morphe dulu right here in back-to-back verses. So in verse 6, he existed in the form of God. In the morphe dulu, he existed, in the Greek it says, in morphe theu, in the form of God. Now, so that is, that of course he is God, has always been God, but that was his form until the incarnation. So the Father is spirit, the Spirit is spirit, the Son is spirit, all right? And in the form of God, God the Son then was able to come repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. He could come as a, as a burning bush, he could come as a, as a pillar of fire, he could come as the angel of the Lord, very common that he would come to earth as the angel of the Lord, or uh, in various other manifestations of, of, of Jesus Christ, of God the Son in the Old Testament, uh, they were called Christophanies or Theophanies of, of God the Son uh, because he was in Morphetheu, right? Interestingly enough, once he comes in the flesh, after the incarnation, after the virgin birth, never again does he return as the angel of the Lord. Never again does he return in any other Morphe, in any other form. He is now the Word made flesh. He is now, and in resurrection glory, that body of his resurrection glory is the body of his eternal glory and uh, eternal destiny and this name that is named uh, above every other name. So we'll talk about resurrection glory as we deal with that. So he existed in the form of God. That's going to be contrasted with uh, taking the form of a bondservant. Do not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, Okay? This is ultimately the, the, uh, the, the key issue is uh, in not regarding himself but regarding the needs of others as uh, we have this regarding verb. The same regarding verb in verse 6 where it says did not regard equality with God is the same regarding verb from verse 3. With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And so since we're called upon to regard others as greater than us, then uh, he was not regarding himself as the greatest, even though he is. Do not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And if you think about it, Satan regarded equality with God a thing to be grasped. And he said, I will be like the Most High God. And he rebelled, right? Adam and Eve thought equality with God was a thing to be grasped and uh, grasped that fruit and uh, ate and fell. Uh, and yet here's Jesus who didn't view equality with God a thing to be grasped, but let it go. He absolutely let it go and uh, emptied himself so as not to ever exercise any deity privilege during the time of his first advent incarnation on this earth. All right, the verb uh, harpazo is our rapture verb. If you've ever studied the rapture doctrine, it's a blessing. I love the rapture doctrine. You and I are going to be raptured any day now, maybe tonight. We don't know when it's going to be, but sometime that trumpet's going to sound and Jesus is going to grab us 
and we're going to be caught up, snatched up into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, right? The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. Harpazo, caught up, snatched, grabbed, okay? And that's what this uh, noun is. This noun, harpagmos, comes from that verb harpazo. And, uh, and so equality with God is not a grasping thing. It's not something we can grab. We wouldn't want to anyway. But he grabs us. And uh, we have equality because we're in Christ. There's a, there's a blessing. We're partakers of the divine nature. How, how unbelievable is that? You talk about the grace of God. All right, but then he emptied himself. And the verb for empty is kanao. And this is where we spent most of our time on Sunday. He emptied himself. He made himself void, set himself as of no account. Uh, I like the, that use in Romans. Uh, you know, if... if uh, if uh, if if grace if uh, I'm going to misquote it now, let me Romans four fourteen. It's, it's a logical thing that Paul presents here in Romans four, talking about nullifying faith and nullifying grace. So uh, in Romans four fourteen, if those who are of the law are heirs, then faith is made void and the promise is nullified. All right, and that's the that's the doctrine there in Romans four, saying God made unconditional covenant promises to Abraham. And that's the basis of everything. That's the new covenant, that's land, seed, and blessing, that's everything moving forward for the eternal destiny of those in Christ. And uh, that, that whole amazing unconditional covenant, the promises to Abraham. Then 430 years later, he gives a law under Moses. So now does that replace the Abrahamic covenant? Does that replace promise? Are we going to operate on a law basis to earn eternal life? Not at all. And if you go down that faulty way of thinking, if, uh, if the law can uh, fulfill what promise, what, what the Abrahamic covenant promised, goodness gracious, how horrendous is that? So if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. So the idea of making void or nullifying, that's the expression uh, here with uh, the verb kanao. And so, is that what Christ did? Did he nullify himself? Did he make himself void? Well, what he did was, he set aside all of those glories of being equal with God. He set those all aside. And he operated as a servant. He operated as a human. He operated as a creature. He operated as something that was lower than the angels. And that comes out in Proverbs 8. I'm sorry, Psalm 8. It gets quoted in Hebrews. He was made for a little while lower than the angels, all right? And so that becomes uh, significant as well. Sometimes I draw it out, and sometimes I uh, don't draw it out. Nope, that's not it. So let me draw it out here. And so, of course, God, angels, how mighty are angels, and man, as far as the angels are concerned, we're cockroaches. <laughs> we're dust creatures. We are pathetic, mortal beings. I can prove that from Job and other passages. Well, here's Satan who wanted to ascend, who wanted to be like the Most High God. And here's Jesus who is God and who came down lower than the angels. See how beautiful this is? This is why in the provision of, of eternal life in Jesus Christ, this is the ultimate resolution to the angelic conflict. And so he was made for a little while lower than the angels, and then he tasted death for everyone. Now, of course, he's exalted back, not only back to where he was before, even higher. That's 
hard to imagine. How do you, how do you exceed infinity? Okay? And yet the Father says, not only the glory that you had before, but an even greater glory that you've never had before because he humbled himself to the point of death. So keep those things in, uh, in mind as well. So he emptied himself. Now the idea of emptying, any idea, whatever you decide about emptying, you can't violate deity. All right? There are some bad approaches to emptying. Some that have even speculated that he stopped being God. Right? Ridiculous. Throw that out. Reject that. Uh, how, you can't stop being God. Any, anybody that can stop being God wasn't God to start with. God is eternal. God is infinite. God is immutable, unchangeable. That's the nature of perfection. If, if something can be changed, if something can become less than it is now, it's not perfect. He is eternally the perfect I am. And so any concept of kanao or kenosis that has an idea of uh, immutability or the attributes of deity. So when he lays them aside, when he nullifies them, when he makes them void, what he does is he consciously chooses to not exercise any privilege, any right, any facet. And so he never taps into omniscience. He never taps into omnipresence. He never, when he wants to go from point A to point B, he walks from point A to point B. He never manifests his, his facet of omnipresence just to show up here because he's there anyway, right? And so he walks from point A to point B. Even if he's walking across the water, he's still walking from point A to point B, right? Likewise, he never uses omniscience. There's places where it looks like he uses omniscience, but really that's just a prophet at work. That's just God working through an Old Testament prophet, giving him an insight the way that every Old Testament prophet was given those kind of insights. All right. So uh, these other expressions, I find them helpful. If, uh, if, the, if the term emptied himself is a puzzle, well then switch metaphors. Maybe, maybe you'll find Romans 15 to be more useful. Maybe you'll find Romans 15. That way you don't get fixated on one particular metaphor or one particular expression, but look at all of the expressions and put them together and say they're all saying the same thing. So Romans 15.3, even Christ did not please himself. Remember this is, uh, let me back up to verses 1, 2, and 3 here. Romans 15, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. How about that? Because Jesus Christ, of course, is strong. He created the universe. I'd say that's pretty strong. Okay? And yet he came to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. He came to accomplish work on the cross that we couldn't do. And not just please ourselves. He didn't, do, he didn't do that for his own good pleasure. He did that for the Father's good pleasure and for our sake. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. This is just fundamental to the Christian way of life. We're here to edify one another because Christ came to edify us. Even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me, as it is written. Okay? And so all those things that happened to Jesus happened according to the Scriptures. How about 2 Corinthians 8-9? Second Corinthians 8, of course, is a big money chapter talking about giving and so forth. Second Corinthians 8, 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. 
You ever wonder where all those Prince and the Popper fairy tales all came from and the different uh, Brothers Grimm stories and whatever else, you know? Here's the king of the universe who identifies as a slave, who takes the form of a doulos. Anyway, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now that's just another way of describing the Kanao doctrine, the Kenosis doctrine, right? But it uses a financial metaphor to demonstrate how uh, he laid aside his privileges, how he emptied himself, how he forsook any use of any uh, wealth that he could have had, the, the, the riches of heaven. Let that all go. And then finally, Hebrews 2, which itself comes from Psalm 8, but Hebrews 2, 14 through 16. And, um, well, let's see, verses 6 through 8 come through Psalm 8, but uh, you get to 14 through 16. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So he had to come, he had to die. This is what he did in his first advent incarnation. And he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. And that's the, uh, the teaching there. So anyway, this is what we're dealing with. The Word became flesh. God humbled Himself. God the Son submitted to the will of God the Father and lived this life of humility that we might have eternal life through faith in Him. That's kenosis. Now, that verb for emptying, is followed by three participles. Let me get back to my text. Philippians 2. That verb for emptying is followed by three participles. So we might say, um, I should have prepped this ahead of time. So Pastor Bob taught a lesson in Philippians. Okay? Illustrating, explaining, and admonishing the saints of Austin Bible Church. You follow that? So Pastor Bob taught a class from Philippians, illustrating, teaching, and admonishing the saints of Austin Bible Church. So it's just one activity. That activity is taught a Bible class. But then those ings, right? The, the participles that follow, they give the details, they give the added information as far as how did that happen? When did that happen? Why did that happen? What was going on when that was happening? And that's the same thing here. He emptied himself, but then there's taking, being made, being found. Okay? So those three participles are giving the definition. They're giving the explanation for these things. All right? So we have, and, and amazingly enough, this is such sweet poetry too. It's an active participle, it's a middle participle, it's a passive participle. <laughs> How fun is that? So, uh, you know, if you're a language geek, you get all three moods right there. Active voice, pass, middle voice, passive voice. Okay? All three voices. So, we have to look at these. The aorist active verb for emptying is followed by aorist active participle, aorist middle participle, aorist passive participle. And that's what we have here. So, taking the form of a bondservant, active voice. He actively did this. The subject accomplishes the activity of the verb. Jesus actively, lombano, he took the form of a bondservant. And then being made, 
in the likeness of men. That's middle voice, being made. Ginemai is a deponent verb, but it's middle voice, right? Being made. So the subject accomplishes it, and the subject also experiences the results of what's done. That's middle voice. It's like a blend between active and passive. And then in the passive voice, the subject of the verb doesn't even do the verb at all. Somebody else is doing the verb, and the, su- and the, the, the subject here, the one spoken of, uh, the effects are, are um, happening. So he's being found. He's not the one finding. He's being found. We understand the difference there? So active voice would be finding. Passive voice is being found. And uh, that's what we have here. So active voice, middle voice, passive voice. And in this, um, are we talking about different things here? Are we talking about the same thing? I think they're all celebrating the same thing in the sense of the word becoming flesh. But before we leave this point, I'm going to present a maybe a, a different way to look at it. So, But for the time being, all three expressions celebrate how the Word became flesh. That God was and then God became. So he was in the form, he existed in the form of God until he took the form of a bondservant. And then he took the form of a bondservant and that's the form he operated in. The form of a bondservant. The morphe dulu. And uh, being made in the likeness of men and then being found in appearance as a man. So, we're talking about the first advent of Jesus Christ born in a manger. So, taking the form of a bondservant. And again, it's morphe, it's the same morphe that we had in uh, the uh, form of God. In verse 6, it's the same morphe that we have here. So, he, he, although he had the form of God, part of what he emptied himself is he laid that privilege aside and he operated or existed in the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. So, in the form of a bondservant, the morphe of a doulos. And morphe is only used three times, by the way. In the whole New Testament, it's only used three times. Two of them right here in Philippians. Form of God, form of a bondservant. The only other time is in Mark 16, 12, in a disputed text, by the way. Because uh, the earliest manuscripts end the Gospel of Mark with verse 8. But in Mark uh, 16, 12, you have this form here. And the reason why the disciples on the Emmaus Road didn't recognize him. So um, after that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. And they went away and reported to the others, but they did not believe them either. So when he appeared to the men on the Emmaus Road, he appeared in a different morphe, appeared in a different form. Okay. Anyway, so there's not a lot to work with there in terms of form. And yet, the form of, of a servant, the form of man, this is what he comes in. Okay, Not walking this earth in the form of God, but in the form of a bondservant. Okay? Secondly, being made in the likeness of man. Being made in the likeness of men. Now this is the one that's in the middle voice. So this is the one where it's both kind of a blend of active and passive. He is accomplishing the activity, but he is also experiencing the results. Accomplishing the activity and experiencing the results. So a lot of times uh, verbs like this, a lot of times 
expressions like this become rather reflexive. They, they have uh, reflexive pronouns connected to them in many cases. Not here, but in many cases they have reflexive pronouns attached to them where you're doing something to yourself. And so it's, uh, it's expressed that way. But being made in the likeness of men, homoioma, likeness, or homoiosis, another related noun, likeness. Homoioma has six uses in the New Testament. Homoiosis has one use in the New Testament. And uh, we see the issue here. Now this is, and plus some Septuagint uses that I think are significant as well. We want to look at those beyond the New Testament uses. So when you're thinking likeness, does that, does any, any verses jumping out at you? Likeness, right? God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. That's right. And so we have image and likeness. And I find it curious that image and likeness is throughout the Old Testament, image and likeness of God, image and likeness of God. And uh, humanity is told, don't make an image, right? You're in the image and likeness of God. Don't make an image of God. And uh, different applications there. Anyway, then here comes Jesus Christ in the likeness of man. And uh, we see it here. So let's start uh, with Romans, and then we'll go back and get those Septuagint uses. Romans one twenty three for likeness. Okay, homoiosis. And this is, um, you know, it's, it's a homo term. We get our Greek homo for like or the same. Okay, other compound nouns that use homo uh, come from the same thing here in the Greek. Romans 1 and verse 23. All right. So part of the rebellion against God, uh, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen. How have they been seen? Through the idols that we make? No. Through his work. And so creation itself testifies to the invisible. So clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And look what they do now. They exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness, in the homoiosis or homoioma, in the form and you see there it's translated form, but it's not morphe. You understand why this study gets complicated very quickly? Because <laughs> we're trying to study form and likeness and, and, uh, and uh, appearance. We've got these English nouns, form and likeness and appearance. And yet we've got these Greek nouns of, uh, of morphe, homoioma, and schema. And sometimes those three Greek nouns don't always line up with the English words that, that translate them. And that can be frustrating as anything. And you want to say, no, don't use the word form for homoioma, just limit the use of the word form to, to morphe and I'll be happy. Or limit the use of form to schema and I'll be happy. Or just be consistent with it. And the translators often are not. Okay, And so that's why we, we, we wrestle with it, we puzzle it over and we want to we want to keep our morphes separate from our homoiomas and separate from our schemas. So, they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image 
an icon, an image in the homoioma form or likeness of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And so any idol, any idolatry, any, any form that you craft is not in the image of God. God is spirit, is the form of God. You can't, you can't manufacture an idol representing the morphetheu. And to attempt it is not only disobedient, not only blasphemous, but it defies the very purpose for what God was doing when Jesus Christ took the form of man. Understand? Because God became flesh. God became a man. Jesus laid aside deity, the privileges of deity. He laid aside the morphe theu so he could take up the morphe dulu. He took up the form of a bondservant. All right. I'm not explaining this very well. We'll just keep going. Um, But the idea that we're going to shape something of wood or gold or stone or whatever, and we're going to shape something and say this represents God is an insult. Because God became a man. All right. Anyway, that's the, that's the use there. How about chapter 5 and verse 14? A lot of these come from Romans. 5.14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness, in the homoioma, the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. And so there's a likeness. You can have likeness of sin, as we see here. And even, even uh, without sinning in the likeness of Adam, well, who can do that? Who, who of us today can eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? None of us. There is nobody today that can commit the sin in the likeness of Adam. But the point is that uh, Adam was a type. Adam is the federal head. We were all in Adam when Adam sinned. And so the point being, we're not comparing sins. We're not comparing whose sins are worse than whose other sins. Okay? We're all sinners. We're all in Adam. And uh, death reigns under those circumstances. How about chapter 6 and verse 5? If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Here's more homoioma. Okay? And so what happens here with likeness? Whether you're talking about um, the likeness of a sin or you're talking about the likeness of a death or the likeness of a resurrection or the, the, uh, uh, the likeness of God, whatever we're talking about, we're talking about something that is, that is put up there in, in a parallel, something that's put up there on an equivalent level. And that's us in the likeness of his death, in the likeness of his resurrection. And... Uh, the positional truth that goes with that, the, the blessings. So I don't have to die on a cross. Jesus did that in my place, right? That's why this is so significant. Because he bore my likeness, I now have the likeness of his death. I now have the likeness of his resurrection. That's why the doctrine of identification is so critical. Anyway, likeness, homoyoma. Chapter 8 and verse 3, more likeness. Where the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. The only difference between Christ's humanity and our humanity? 
He didn't have a sin nature. But he was still absolutely, truly human. Human nature, human soul, human spirit, human body, just no sin. Until he who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf. Think how powerful that is. Of course, Philippians 2.7 is where we are tonight. What about James 3.9? James 3.9, more likeness. Talking about the tongue, why the tongue is so dangerous. It's the same tongue that blesses, it's the same tongue that curses. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. So that's homoyoma. And then finally, Revelation 9.7. The last use of likeness in the New Testament. And the appearance, oh my goodness. <laughs> I want all my appearance nouns to be schema. Why, why do they keep doing this to me? The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. And they had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like the breastplates of iron. These are not normal uh, uh, locusts, by the way. They have tails like scorpions and stings and their tails and the power to hurt men for five months. And they have a king over them, Abaddon, the king of the abyss. Anyway, good thing we won't be here when that gets unleashed on this earth, right? So we have homoioma, homoiosis for likeness. Sometimes it's rendered image, sometimes it's rendered appearance. A lot of overlap between these three terms. And the fact that we get all three of them used here in Philippians 2 I think is significant because it's poetry, it's a song. A lot of times in song, what do you do? You use synonyms, you use equivalent terms, you use related terms in parallel form. That's what we're seeing over and over again in, in uh, Proverbs. So it's not surprising that he takes the form of a bondservant, he's made in the likeness of man, he's being found in appearance as a man, and that we have form, image, and, and appearance in, uh, in the song that, we, that we're looking at here tonight. All right. Now the Septuagint uses uh, are pretty much what you might expect. Genesis one twenty six, where we have image uh, and likeness. It's the term likeness that uh, we're focusing on tonight, because it's the term. Uh, the term image is uh, is icon, which is not any of our Philippians terms at all. Okay. Um, but our image, our likeness. But look at the string of things there in Deuteronomy. I'm going to skip Genesis. We know Genesis. How about Deuteronomy four? And look at all these warnings, 12, 15, 16, 17, 18, 23, 25. Deuteronomy 4 has got a lot to say about likeness. So uh, remember that Deuteronomy is the second time to go through the law. It's the Deuteronomos, the second giving of the law to the next generation, warning the uh, wilderness generation not to repeat the the evil of the Exodus generation. And so uh, Moses is uh, telling them to pay attention and reviewing their history. And in the process of this, he says in verse 12, Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. This is as they approached Sinai. Um, verse 10, Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, 
when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words, so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, that they may teach their children. You came near and you stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the, of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. They stood at the base of the mountain, and Moses went up and came back. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but you saw no homoiosis or homoioma, saw no form, only a voice. It's a form. Why is it translated form? Only a voice. That's verse 12. And then, of course, he gave you the Ten Commandments and he gave you the tablets of stone and, and the application here. Verse 15. Watch yourselves carefully since you did not see any form, he did not see any homoiosis, homoioma, on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire. They heard the voice, they didn't see the form. Verse 16, so that you not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female. What are, how are you going to craft this idol? How are you going to craft this idol? The morphetheu can't be, can't be shaped, can't be fashioned. All right, the likeness, verse 17, of any animal. Oh, my. <laughs> you know, animal idolatry in particular is really insulting to God because most of the animals are, most of the zoological animal realm have similarity in appearance to angelic realm. For example, um, cherubim look cow-like. All right? They've got the face of an ox. All right? And so the reason why the golden calf is so blasphemous, of course, is it's the image of a cherubim. Right. And uh, there's others with the face of a lion, the face of an eagle. And the face, well, those animals were designed by God in the Garden of Eden and created, and here's the zoological realm of creation, and those animals have appearances similar to the angels that preceded them, see. And so for people to come along and craft idols in the shape of an animal, I'm sure it amuses the fallen angels all to no end, but God is not amused, okay? God is not amused at all. So the uh, likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth. And you name it, if there's an animal out there, there's been a cult built to it at some point, idolatry somewhere. The uh, Philistines were known for their fish god. Dagon was a goofy thing with a fish head, uh, kind of a body of a man and a head of a fish. Anyway, think about what the Minotaur mythology is about too. Same thing. It's it's a bull head. It's uh, you know a cherubim head on a on a human torso body. And anyway, the whole Minotaur mythology is just worshiping cherubim. As it comes down to that. So uh, verse sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, twenty-three, twenty-five. Where did I leave off? Okay, uh, eighteen. You got the creeps. The likeness of anything that creeps on the ground. The likeness of any fish in the water below the earth. Verse twenty-three. Watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you and made for yourself, and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. So, no idols in any form.
verse 25, when you become the father of children and children's children and have remained long in the land and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of any of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. You shall surely perish. Okay? You've been warned. You're on notice again and again and again and again. How many homoeomas did we have in this one chapter against uh, such idolatry? The last Septuagint used, there's, there's many, many more I left out, but these I think are significant. How about Isaiah 40? What was Isaiah 40 getting, dealing with? Remember this? How long ago was, I, was our Isaiah study? Wasn't that long ago. You know, in Isaiah 40, there's all these rhetorical questions like, really? Is there another God like me? And uh, there isn't. And uh, the nations, it says in Isaiah 40, 15, the nations are like a drop from the bucket, are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. And uh, the nations are nothing before him, regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? What likeness will you compare with him? In the moment you make a likeness of God, you're, you're just, you've lost it's not possible to do anyway. There is none like him. No, not one. He is unique. And any likeness is, uh, is blasphemy. As uh, for the idol, a craftsman casts it. A goldsmith plates it with gold. A silversmith fashions chains of silver. And yet, how poor. He who is too impoverished for such a thing uh, selects a tree so I can't afford the silver and gold idol. Let me make a wooden one. <laughs> okay, That's the best I can do in my tax bracket. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm a more humble, economically humble. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not a privileged, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a disadvantaged idolater. So um, <laughs> my disadvantaged idolatry is going to be wooden instead of gold and silver. <coughs> So at least pick a tree that's not rotting and um, seek out a craftsman, a skillful craftsman, to prepare an idol that will not totter. I mean, when you're finished, you want this thing solid on a pedestal or something that's you know not going to fall over. Hmm. Anyway, to what likeness will you compare with him? You know, and it's, it's, it's curious to me. I'm, I'm out of time tonight, but the... Um, the uh, creativity of the inventiveness and in, in whatever. I mean, you've got a lump of clay and you're a, you're a potter or you're a, 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 a clay person. You know, you can, you can fashion that into whatever, right? I know an artist in Spokane and he looks at a stump. He gets this log, this stump of wood and it's just sitting there and he stares at it for a month or two months or however long it takes until his artistic eye can see what's in that stump. And then he starts whittling and carving and he makes it happen according to what his eye had seen. He had this one stump he looked at for almost a year and then he finally decided it was Elijah. And then he spent another year carving it and I've seen the finished product. It was Elijah. He's standing there. He's got a staff in his hand. He's pointing a long bony finger at the nation of Israel and he turned a stump into Elijah. 
It's just amazing. But when you're the craftsman, you decide what you're going to make. You decide what it's going to look like. Tall, fat, skinny, short, whatever you're going to make. Male, female, whatever. And you have the sovereign control of, you know, you're crafting a God in your image. A God of your preferences. A God of your delight. And God says, don't be doing that. Okay? First of all, God doesn't have a form until the Word becomes flesh. And so anytime you try to attempt to give God a form, a form of your own imagination, you are attacking the hypostatic union and the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Because that's His good pleasure. God wants to take a human form so that He can redeem us. He doesn't want us inventing a, a God form. Equality with God is not a thing to be grasped. All right, well, we'll try to do more on this on Sunday. Father, thank you for this morning or this evening. Thank you for your grace and truth. Bless our studies, Father, and help us, Father, especially when the vocabulary just overlaps and, and changes and, and uh, there, there's no English consistency in the translation. And so, Father, uh, help make these things clear to each one of us as we study. Thank you, Father, for your Son taking our place, that we might have His righteousness. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.